I invite you to hear these words from Scripture, from the book of Acts, chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly, from heaven, there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues, as a fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each one of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now, there were devout Jews from every nation from under heaven living in Jerusalem. And at the sound, the crowd gathered and was bewildered because each one heard them speaking in their native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each of us, in our own native language? Parthenians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. In our own languages, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others sneered and said, They're filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and answered, addressed them, Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let it be known to you and listen to what I am saying. Indeed, these are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only nine o'clock in the morning. No, this is what is spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God, it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men dream dreams. Even upon my slaves, both men and women, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy." And I will show portents in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and smoky mist. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Well, good morning, church. I have a confession to make. I came here feeling all spiritual and devout, and then I bumped into Kevin Huddleston this morning, first thing, first service, and he started talking about this great rain you had in San Angelo, Texas. And, uh, but the only thing I saw in Abilene uh, yesterday was a cloud in the distance 
I've come to think of it, was southwest of Abilene. Feeling a little envious, actually, but uh, I've prayed about it. I think I'll, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it. I'm going to make it. Well, it's good to be with you today and uh, spend time and worship with you to sing these good songs. And to remember that uh, Father, Son, and Spirit, uh, that centers us and reminds us of who we really are as we gather together Sunday to Sunday. Because life can be confusing and uh, unsettling, and we can find ourselves uh, with things happening around us and among us and to us in ways that cause us to, to get a little unsettled, and we don't know whether it's a good thing or whether it's a bad thing. Is this a God thing or not? Or is this just something uh, disturbing or just the way life is? It could get a little confusing. Uh, not long ago, I was driving in Nashville, Tennessee, and uh, saw it. I was driving down the freeway there, saw a, a truck driving down the road. Next to me, it was one of those septic tank trucks. You know what I'm talking about. Septic tank, septic systems. Yeah, okay. And it said, uh, it said this, it said Biggs Septic Tank Service. And then underneath it, in kind of italicized words, was its uh, slogan. It said, call Monday through Friday, comma, sorry, we haul milk on the weekends. <laughs> it was just, you know, I kid you not, I just, really, uh, I, and I, I, kind of confusing. I don't know quite what to make of that, right? Just don't know what to make of that. Or uh, maybe you saw the commercial a few years ago. Uh, There's actually a pair of commercials. One uh, from a mortgage company, if I remember correctly, about this kind of playing around with this confusion, how impressions can send us in all kinds of bizarre directions. This was a commercial where there were two clerks standing at a counter, and they were doing their thing, and there was somebody on their cell phone talking uh, on their cell phone, and the person on the cell phone said suddenly, I'm going to rob you. And uh, this clerk's just jumped up, hit the alarm bell, shot the guy with pepper spray, and crowned him with a two-before, just real quick. Like, they didn't really get what was going on. Or another, another one that came out about the same time, this is three or four years ago, was uh, of, a, of a fellow who was preparing a romantic dinner. You, the scene opens up, there's the table with the cloth napkins and the fine china and the wine glasses and the candlestick sticks, the candles burning, and he's busy in the kitchen. <clears throat> uh, there's a tomato or spaghetti sauce boiling slowly on the stove, and he's chopping up stuff uh, on the counter with a big butcher knife, and a white cat comes walking along on the counter bumps into the, the, the pot on the stove, the tomato sauce goes flying everywhere, the cat trips and falls, and, uh, and it falls into all of that tomato sauce. And then there's this, t- this scene where the man is standing with a butcher knife in one hand, a very red-looking cat in the other, and turns to greet his girlfriend or wife as she walks in the door. Sometimes things can be just a little confusing to know how to interpret. What is going on here? What's going on? And it can be that way in our life. It can be that way in our congregation as we see things unfold, as uh, events happen, as ministries take shape. And it's how do we sort this stuff out? How do we figure out what God is doing 
sometimes we just have to get to that point, which is a good point, rather than saying, I like it or I don't like it. It's really, what's God up to in all of this? Well, I think that's what's happening in the book of Acts, chapter 2. Uh, you know, we, last week we looked at the first chapter and we saw where Jesus ascended into heaven and the, the disciples were called on to wait, to wait for the promise of the Father, to wait. And they, they engaged in waiting and they've been waiting and waiting. It sort of reminds me of Carly Simon's old song, right? Anticipation. It making me wait, or the old uh, Heinz commercial about the ketchup, right? You know, when's it going to come? When's it going to come? Well, it does come. And when it comes, it is uh, bizarre and remarkable and amazing and perplexing what God is doing here. People are from all kinds of places and all kinds of languages are hearing... Uh, Uh, people speak in their own native language. And what they're hearing, and we often forget this, what they're hearing is uh, the speeches about God's mighty power and mighty deeds. That's the critical little piece in all of this. And they're amazed by all of that. How are they going to sort this out? How do they figure this stuff out? Well, interestingly, as Luke tells the story in chapter 2, There are a series of questions that help create a structure for the whole narrative. And I'd like to point them out to you. They're kind of three. Sometimes you could say they're four, but they're they're in a movement. They're they're in a movement. They're in relationship to each other. And they help us, I think, as we wrestle with our own sorting out of God's work in our world. The first of the one of those questions comes right in the middle of what I was describing a moment ago. They're hearing this amazing thing uh, that they're able to hear uh, the language in their own language, the work of of God. And they're, what is this? What's going on with this? Is what what's going on? They ask. How is it that we can hear this? And in this moment, we're introduced to the reality. I believe. That whenever God wants to get our attention, he almost always has to do it by creating a bit of a crisis for us or to create a sense of equal, disequilibrium. That's a big word, disequilibrium. Uh, he, there, it comes when things uh, are, uh, are new to us. It's a new thing. Uh, and it's in that new moment that we're called to attention in a way that we have not been before. Uh, you, you know this, it's the sort of thing like when they, they change your cereal and they put it in a different box and you're looking for it at the grocery store. You know, it, it's like, whoa, what's happening here? And in that moment, you're attuned to something in a way that you've not been attuned before because your world has changed slightly. Well, if, if cereal changes your world, I don't know. Or, or let me get a little more, a little more thoughtful or deep, deep about this. Psychologists say that when you fall in love, often what happens is your world changes. Uh, things begin to alter around you. Your world becomes disoriented when you truly fall in love. Uh, I remember when Vicki and I were dating, we were getting pretty serious, and uh, it, it began to change our world. We stayed up till one and two and three in the morning talking to each other, and then we'd go our separate ways and get ready for the next day. I was in graduate school, she was in graduate school, I had a job, she had a job, and I know this, my graduate school grades began to do like this, because I was in disequilibrium, right? And, and her grade, or, well, I don't know about her grades, she was pretty smart in, in school, but what was happening at her work, she worked as a dental assistant, 
uh, and the dentist, Dr. Lamb, finally just stopped and looked at her one day and said, Vicki, you either need to marry that guy or quit dating him because your work is really suffering around here. I think it was after she exposed some x-rays. She was kind of dawdling down the hall, kind of, uh. well, what happened? Well, she was in lo- I was in love. We were in love, and our world was kind of altered and, and changed in some significant way. When God breaks into our world, I'm just telling you this, it will come as a shock to us. And when God is up to stuff, it will be something that is new to us. It just will be, no matter what it is. Whether it's something that happens in some ministry in this church or in a Bible class when you discover some new insight into Scripture and you go, I had never thought about it this way before. What's going on with this? That's when it will happen. We will find ourselves in a moment of, uh, what's going on here? Just like these folks did on the day of Pentecost. And when that happens, a second question should come to our minds as it did for these folks on that day. The second question that comes is, and you heard me read it a few moments ago, it is, what does this mean? In the midst of this disequilibrium that I felt when I was falling in love with a woman who would be my wife, I began to ask, why am I all turned inside out and upside down and wrong side out? And all, oh, this may be the gal. This might be it. What does this mean? It might mean that she's the one. When disequilibrium hits, we are confronted with the task of sorting out what does it mean. And that's an important task because all too often things happen in the world and we can take a lot of different, uh, there can be a lot of different responses to that. We can say, yes, it is God's work, or it might be something uh, completely uh, unrelated to God altogether. Uh, It might be the fact that the work of God is happening in our church, that the Spirit of God is working out God's will and purpose, or it could be something not related at all. Or as it, um, you remember the story, the Christmas Carol, when Ebenezer Scrooge gets visited by the ghosts, and uh, there's a point where he's in that sarcastic mode, and he says, I just think you're just a bit of undigested beef right? It's not really the ghost, it's just I'm having a little indigestion. Well, how we address that is by asking, what does this mean? What does it mean? And when we begin to ask, when we begin to ask that question, we need to do what Peter does. What Peter does in this moment is he says, look, let's go to scripture. He goes to the prophet Joel, and he begins to reflect on the work of uh, this, the, he's, he begins to reflect on this outstanding thing that's a happening, this new thing, the outpouring of the Spirit, by using the lens of Joel to get at that. And then he moves further from Joel to the preaching of the gospel story, which I did not read for you today, beginning in verse 22 and following, the actual sermon begins. Uh, 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 he, he, he reads his scripture and then he preaches his sermon. My point is to say that what Peter does in trying to interpret the things that are happening in his life is to use the lens of the gospel by which to judge what does this mean. 
And what he does is he says, look, God is up to something big in this world. And he sent Jesus Christ into the world to do this big thing. And that through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God is altering the way in which he relates to humankind. In other words, he he works through the gospel to say, that's what this means. It means that God is showing up in our world. It means that when Jesus, baby Jesus was a baby and they said, call him Emmanuel because it meant that God is with us, that God is with us. So one of the things that I would say to us as we wrestle with how we sort things out, is this something that God is up to or not? Is that we must discipline ourselves to use the, a lens by which to interpret the data that is in front of us. And we can use a lot of things to interpret that data, but the thing that the church has always used is nothing more nor less than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Does it speak redemptively, hopefully, about what God is up to in the world? That's the way in which I look at what God is doing in the world and around us. I know we'll be tempted to use a lot of other kinds of lenses. There are a lot of things that are floating around in the world by which we can judge things. <laughs> I've got a daughter who's just recently moved to Abilene. Uh, she's uh, going to be buying a house sometime soon. Uh, she's living with us now, so emphasis on sometime soon. Uh, So she's looking at houses, right? So she's on the internet and talking to realtors. She said, hey, dad, this is Friday, I think it was. Check this out. And uh, she began to read the description of this house. You know, this is a three-bedroom house, one bath, uh, has a yard and has a garage or whatever. And then she said, listen to this. This was the next description. It says, this house is close to eight Pokemon stops. And... The building next door is a Pokemon gym. Really? Really? Well, that's one way to interpret, or to kind of assess the value of a piece of real estate. It's not, not one that I would necessarily recommend. Um, but uh, nevertheless, well, and it may or may not be a good one. I guess time will tell. Hey, I actually said that with, with a straight face. Uh, I didn't get through it this morning in first service. Um, but, but maybe not, right? Maybe not. Maybe that's not a good interpretive lens for real estate. Um, and there are things that we can interpret a data that we get in our lives and the living of our lives and what happens in our small group and what happens in our family and what goes on in our church. Lots of lenses we can choose from, but there's only one lens that's really worth holding on to, and that is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's by the way in which we interpret what's going on. Because when we do that, the third question will inevitably come to our lips. Just as it did on the day of Pentecost, as Peter began to preach the gospel and as he laid out what God was up to in the world, and when you look at what God is up to in the world through the lens of Jesus Christ, then you begin to see that this business of folks hearing the mighty deeds of God spoken in their own language begins to resonate with them, and they ask the third question. Do you know what it is? It's in verse 37. Many of you could say it with me. It is, brothers, what what shall we do? You know it? Verse 37. 
Men and brethren, what shall we do? What shall we do? The question is, as we begin to see the work of God in the world, what's going on here? What does it mean? And as we begin to realize what it does mean in light of the gospel, the natural response is to do nothing less than to say, what do I do to align myself with the work of God in the world? Uh, I think we can read this text often and think it speaks to somebody else, especially those of us who show up at church on Sunday mornings. For most of us in this room have heard verse 37, what shall we do? And we've heard verse 38 that says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. We've heard that. It can be very easy for us to think that we've heard it, we've done it, and we're moving on. But that's not the reason why Luke tells this story. He tells this story to remind the church that there is always a need for us to be people who are paying attention to what God is doing in the world, of actively reflecting on it by asking what does this mean in light of the gospel and God's work in the world, and to ask the question, what shall we, what shall I do? The call to repentance is a call that we live with every day of our lives, church. Whether it's repentance from thinking envious thoughts about San Angelo over Abilene about rain, it's supposed to be funny, or, well, it wasn't funny when I first heard it, that's, that's for certain, or uh, whether it's how I continue to align myself with the work of God in the world day by day. For the fact of the matter is, uh, repentance Although it sounds like some big theological word, and it is a big theological word, at its very heart, it simply means to turn. To turn. It's the sort of thing you do when you're driving down the road, even on a straight highway, and you continually adjust the steering wheel slightly to stay between the lines. You are repenting when you drive. Or it's the sort of thing you do when you go skiing this winter up in Colorado, and uh, you shush up to the, the bottom of the ski lift, and you're standing in line, and you finally get your, time, your chance to get on the ski chair, you're doing a whole bunch of repenting right there. Because you're going, oh, this way, no, 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 this way, no, here it comes. Oh. And what are you doing? You're aligning yourself so that your seat hits the chair seat. Because you know that if your seat doesn't hit the chair seat, there's going to be a disaster, Right? right? That's repenting. You're aligning yourself with something that's bigger than you. Highways and cars or chairlifts and ski lifts. Or in this case, the powerful work of God in our world with my own heart and life. That is repentance. And when we begin to think and sort out what's happening in our world, if we think that we've got all the answers and everything has to align up with me, then we'll never be surprised and, and we will not ever welcome an opportunity to, to, to consider that something new might actually be the truth of what God is up to in the world. And uh, if, if, if we think that we're the ones who've got all the answers, then we'll never have to ask the question, what does it mean? Because we already know. And we'll never get around to asking what we shall do because we've already done it. We were, hey, I was baptized 55 years ago in a cow tank. I did my repenting and my baptizing back then. 
No, that's not the kind of story Luke once invites us to. He invites us in to a constant life that is reflected in this story of recognizing that God is always at work in our world turning up new dirt. There's always something new for us to learn about what it means to be the people of God in this day. We're always going to be asking, ooh, what's going on here? And we're always going to have to ask the question, what does it mean? And if we're faithful, we'll always be asking the question, well, how do I line myself up with the work of God in the world? There's a, an old Shaker hymn. Uh, the, people, the Shaker people, the 19th century, left a, a rather intriguing legacy in many ways, but some of their hymns were particularly uh, remarkable and wonderful. Uh, this old hymn was called Simple Gifts, and I don't know if we've got a band director in here or two. We might find somebody who knows the name Aaron Copeland and uh, some of his uh, Appalachian Spring. It's, he, he took some of those old Shaker hymns and put them to music. You might hear, have heard elements of this old hymn, but I'm not going to try to sing it, I don't think. Uh, I just want to read some of the words because it speaks about this idea of simply lining ourselves up with something bigger than ourselves. Tis the gift to be simple, tis the gift to be free, tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, we'll be in the valley of love and delight, where true simplicity is gained. To bow and to bend, we won't be ashamed. To turn, turn will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right. Church, it is in the practice of repentance, of turning and aligning ourselves with the heart of God, that the very core of our, our practice of being disciples of Jesus Christ is lived out. And so in the midst of all of the things that happen in our world, whether it's septic tank trucks running down the freeway, or uh, people standing with cats in their hands, or things that are going on in my family's life, or new discoveries that we're encountering as the people of God, Johnson Street, and all of those things, God may be bubbling up. And I invite you to be people who ask good questions. Oh, what's going on here? Hmm, what does this mean? Oh, what shall I do to align myself with God? Let's bow, and then I'll invite Jake to lead us in this song. Gracious God,